Okay, it's on now. So, um, Mark is, uh, he's like a great guy, and uh, he's, he does a lot of great things, and uh, one of the things that he did was he arranged all these, uh, these touch football games way back when, and, and uh, so I, uh, this is like in 2003, church touch football, all right, so who gets hurt in church touch football? Moi. <laughs> so I was... I wasn't going to touch the ball. I was just going to go and block and chase people. You know, that's what I do. And, uh, and so, so I stood way at the very front of the first kickoff, and it came right to me. So I wasn't catching the ball, obviously. It went right through my lap and kept going. And so I dove for the ball. Someone came in sideways, and I got me right in the chest. And uh, that little xiphoid process bone, it's right at the very bottom of the sternum. That got injured, but I didn't know it. And uh, so I went and had, uh, had uh, my whole chest cavity just, just did one of these g-g-booms, and there was like <laughs> scar tissue all over the place, and really hard to sleep for about two years, but eventually it got better. There was always a little bump there. And this year, doing firewood in um, March, April, I, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're standing, at, you're, you're splitting the wood, you throw it in the truck, and you lean on the truck, and... and Right there at the bottom of the sternum where that little thing is, it says, wow, that's sore. And there was a, the bump was bigger than normal. So I went to go see, do you guys remember Meg Amidon? Yeah, so she's my PA down at, uh, at Littleton Regional. And so I saw her, and she says, well, I don't know what that is. Let's take an x-ray. And so the x-ray guy says, well, I don't know what that is. Let's take a CAT scan. And so the CAT scan people says, well, I don't know what that is. <laughs> So they said, well, why don't you go to Dartmouth? So I went down to Dartmouth, saw, saw the surgeon, Dr. Ryan Hassan, female. Oh, she's, she's going to be watching. Hello. Um, hope I get this right. And so that she said, well, I don't know what that is. We'll take a closer look. And, the, and so she set me up with a, so I took a CAT scan, and then we took a PET scan. And a PET scan is not like a CAT scan, even though it sounds like it ought to be. A PET scan is they put this glucose radioactive stuff in you, and then they, it, it shows where the, where the cancer cells are metabolizing it faster than the other cells. And so it says, well, the good news is there's no other cancer. But the bad news is you need a biopsy. So we did the biopsy. It looked like it was just stage one chondrosarcoma, which is uh, cancer of the um, ligament, or the cartilage. And so, as I said, stage one is pretty, pretty easy. Um, and so the, we had a surgery. And um, Heather will come up and talk a little bit about what happened next. My chair. Good morning, Faith Bible. So we met with the doctor a week before her, his surgery. I, it was the first time that I met Dr. Hassan, and I was so delighted. She was so dynamic, so um, reassuring. This is, you know, we should be able to go ahead and take this. It's, your surgery should be done. Here's what the aftercare will be. 
and, and it was just very encouraging and very reassuring. So I was very, very glad to do that. Now, Steve was joking about this time. Many of you heard the joke about him wanting to get an arc reactor like Iron Man. So this is right in this area. She's like, no, 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 you can't have an arc reactor. I can't put that in. But <laughs> if you want to do a tattoo, that's up to you. <laughs> He's decided no. Um, <clears throat> so on surgery day, we arrived at 545 and uh, got right in. And um, after a little bit, Dr. Hassan came in. Well, in the meantime, Jens had sent out this email. In case you can't see it, it says, Hi, small group, please continue to be in prayer for the walkers as Steve is going into surgery for, to become Titanium Man on Thursday. <laughs> Pray that the surgeons can figure out how to, the arc reactor can fit over his sternum. This will surely give Steve something to talk to others about. Why is your light shining so brightly? If only Tony Stark could give the same answer as Steve Walker. <laughs> well, thank you, Jens, for that. We thought it was so funny that we showed it to Dr. Hassan, and she loved it. She said, can I take a picture of it? She took a picture on her cell phone. She goes, I want to send this to my parents because they're in a small group, and they would really get this. So I said, sure, no problem. Um, when Steve went into surgery, he asked if he could have the tumor. She said no, <laughs> but that she would take pictures for us. And so after surgery, she came out, and she goes, I have pictures, but you have to promise you won't faint. I said, I promise I won't faint. And they were really kind of neat pictures of um, how they cut it open, what the size of the tumor was, how they created a mold out of the bone that was his sternum. And then they put in this replacement sternum in there. And she came to that picture, and she looked at me right in the eye, and she said, and this is the breastplate of righteousness. And I said, that's when I knew for sure that this woman got it and gets it. And I'm so grateful. And she said to me, I am a God-fearing woman, and I greatly appreciate all the prayers that have gone out for me and my team. So that Steve was covered with prayer, she was covered with prayer, the team was covered with prayer, God's in, God's in action. Last week, we went and met with her again as a checkup. <clears throat> and uh, in the process, we ended up talking to her about um, if she sees a difference between people who are Christians and those who are non-Christians. Because she said, I was so glad to know that Steve's a Christian. He, she said, it makes sense. His upbeat feeling, his peace about what was going on, it all ties in with his faith. And, she's, and Steve says, do you really see a difference in Christians and non-Christians? She says, oh, yeah. She said the difference, especially if you get people who are in stage four, they may be concerned about the process of getting to death, but they're not concerned about death because they know where they're going. And she said, I see my job as a mission field. So we have a doctor who sees it as her mission to pray for people, to spread the love of Christ, and to be there in the end and to offer hope when it's asked for. So continue to pray for Dr. Hassan. Thank you, Dr. Hassan. And, um, and we're just so grateful 
before we left, we were able to pray with our doctor. We prayed for her, for her ministry, is where she is there at Dartmouth. And we also prayed continually for Steve's illness to be able to glorify God. And that's been our prayer, and that's our continuing prayer. So thank you. Yep, it's good. Thank you. So um, the next slide, if you want to see the tumor. Well, Heather said I can't show the tumor, but I figure this is close enough. It's chocolate. <laughs> so after surgery, I was walking like three to four hours a day, so three to four miles a day, and progressing really well. And Dr. Hassan said that I was her prize pupil. Well, I wasn't really sure that I was a pupil, but you know, Dartmouth is a teaching hospital, so maybe sure, it could be that way. But then I had this intense chest pain when I tried to breathe, and it just, it really hurt. And uh, a blood clot formed in my lungs, and so I had to get that thing taken care of. And, and then you have to go to these like tummy injections, which is like so unnatural, it's like really bad. But I got through that, and then, uh, then I got this infection in my chest uh, from, the, from the JP drain, because it was in there for so long, and it was still putting out stuff, so they said, we really better take this out, I'm afraid of infection, and we got infected. And, and it ended up being this, this little mountain ridge right down the center of my chest, and it was really uncomfortable. Uh, so now I got IVs to deal with that. And I got another drain over here somewhere. And uh, it's working a lot better. Um, but now they said that uh, they didn't get all the cancer. There's still some in there. And um, so then they said, well, let's see what the radiation people think. So I went up to St. Jay to the radiation people. And they said, you know, um, that's, you know, when they cut the sternum out, they created this dust. And uh, so we're going to have this, we're going to go in there and we're going to radiate. I said, well, that's, you know, I would rather go to radiation than another surgery. So that sounds pretty good. Then last week, on Friday a week ago, uh, they said, you know, we decided that you're going to need more surgery, so we're going to open you all back up again, cut the whole thing out again, and start over. But by this time, there's going to be enough scar tissue, especially with all the the bacteria, the antibiotics that it's trying to deal with, and so the scar tissue is going to be really good. So they're going to rip the plate out that they put in there. My breastplate of righteousness is coming out, and it's going to be my scar tissue of righteousness. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, they said that's going to be so thick by that time that they're going to, that should act as a sternum. It's because it's going to be part of me now, and it's not going to be a, a big... Uh, issue with an artificial thing in there if, in case they can't still have problems with the infection. And that's the other thing that happened. They said, now, the problem is when they put the IV or the, um, the PIC line in over here, they said, the, the problem is now that uh, you have a chance to get a bone infection from all that infection that's in there, now we got to, you know, they said, if we can't get that out during surgery and everything and radiation, then you're going to be doing this for a long time. So that's, that wasn't good news. Um, 
this started feeling like Job, you know. Every time you turn around, there's more bad news, except, you know, the problem with... So I, I've, got a, I've got a great church here, good, good support. I got, my wife and I, we, we never lost faith. We never got discouraged and, and got angry with God. And, and I have it all over Job, besides, you know, because we're, we're, we have so much faith. We know what's going on. And, uh, and they needed to roll the duct tape between his friends to keep him to shut up. So they didn't have it, so he had a bad time. But we're doing all right. Uh, so next slide. So church support was fantastic. You know, when I got my little MacBook Air, I couldn't believe how good it was. It had the, the silicone chips, and it was so fast, and it was... It was $900 or $800 at the time. Now it's like a lot more. But uh, I, was, I was like telling everybody, wow, this is a great thing. I mean, it's faster than all the other carbon-based chips and all that stuff. It's great. So I was really telling everybody about it. Now my next best great thing is telling everybody about my church because of... Because of all the support I've had. The gifts and the and the prayers and uh, everything—it's just—it's really good. It was—it was amazing. Excuse me, but I never felt depressed. Never felt desperate. I'm a hundred percent secure, knowing that the Bible's true, and Jesus knows what He's doing. But 20 years ago, I still had some questions. Um, so the best thing, if you want to know about something, what do you do? You teach it, right? And so we went and did the junior high class. So that's when Anna was still in junior high. So we did apologetics class for junior hires. And uh, I believe in God and Jesus, but you know, could I really defend my faith if someone really smart in the atheist field could put me up against it? Would I be able to defend my faith? And so I read a lot of books, and we went over a lot of stuff in the class. Um, the uh, uh, Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for All These Things, Easter. Really good books. If you want to get some really good foundational uh, information, then that's a, that, those are great books to have. Had a lot of other books to read. Um, and I read a lot of stuff, articles from atheists, so I would know what their side of the argument is, so I could have an argument against, well, what are they saying? And so I, I, I was able to get some. And so from archaeology, there's never been a single statement in the Bible that has been proved wrong by history or archaeology, ever. In the last 150 years, it has been common to use the missing evidence as kind of a proof that the Bible's wrong. So these detractors say that uh, it's impossible for the Bible to have so much missing evidence and so much missing information, so you know that the Bible's wrong. But lately, you know, it says in the Bible that if we don't talk, the earth is going to cry out. Well, the earth cries out, and more pieces and more pieces are unearthed. So, for instance, did you know that there was no evidence for a guy named Pontius Pilate? Nothing. Nothing ever existed. And he was the key to the trial that led to the crucifixion and Christ's uh, you know, resurrection. And, and, and if we don't have the resurrection, then we're nothing. 
So they were saying, well, you don't have the resurrection because there's no proof. Well, in 1961, a stone was unearthed that said Pontius Pilate, right on it. It said his job title, whatever that was. And, and that was just the beginning. They're doing all these excavations and everything, and they're coming up with all these things. I think the most recent thing was they had a, a ring that said Pontius Pilate, and there's some, some questionable coins that were unearthed like a couple years ago. So there's some really interesting things going on. But even more interesting, I think, is the fact that there's so many uh, lesser-known Bible characters, and you, you don't know about them. Uh, if, you were, if the Bible was written centuries later, which so many of the, the uh, atheists say, you, know, you can't rely on it because nobody was there. Nobody wrote it up. Um, but there's so many small-time people that are mentioned in the Bible, you know, the, the guy who was the transcriber for this or whatever. How would anybody know centuries later who that was? And now they're coming up with, with uh, either uh, books, like extra-biblical books or things from Josephus that talk about, oh, this guy. And then the Bible says, well, this guy is mentioned also. And it, it really correlates really well. Now, from science, they try to use evolution to disprove the Bible. And that, that prebiotic goo that some animal or some cell crawled out of years and years ago um, they said, well, you know, there's uh, uh, the building blocks of life, uh, and amino acid is the key. And they said, well, if you had, like, something starting all these chemicals, like ammonia and, you know, methane and some other molecules, then you can get a, a, an amino acid. And you can. You can get an amino acid. But to put all these amino acids together to make a protein, it's really hard. I mean, it's... The, the, the chances of that happening are 10, 1 times 10 to the 87th power, which is like, you know, there's not even that many atoms in the universe. You know, that's how big that number is. And so, but what is a cell? What is a cell? A cell is a bunch of uh, protein machines that are programmed to make other protein machines. And what is a protein? A protein is... A simple protein is 150 amino acids long, and you, you have to have thousands of these things all made at the same exact time. And putting the math together, I figured it would take over 14 billion years to get the first cell. If we do it, have so many thousands of these things happening every second, it's just impossible. It just doesn't work with those kind of odds. So, so that's um, really impossible to just have it all of a sudden happen and then have all these things happening all at once. Uh, and what about Easter? All they had to do was come up with a body. And they had a whole regiment of soldiers right there, and they knew where everything was. And all they got was a bunch of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And um, yeah, I, mean, I could go on until December to give you all the reasons that why I have 100% confidence in the Bible. But, that's not what we're here for today. Uh, next, yeah, there we go. So if you can't read that, Jim Valvano, the Jimmy V Foundation. Some of you guys might remember Jimmy V. Who remembers Jimmy V, Jimmy Valvano? A few of you do. He was the, the NC State head coach for basketball. They won the national championship. And he uh, had cancer. And uh, during his, uh, his battle with cancer, 
he won the Arthur Ashe Award, um, and he was going to get a start on the Jimmy V Foundation, which is a cancer research or a, a foundation. And he, he had a speech, and that speech where he uh, was at the ESPYs, he said, um, he said, all I have to do is three things in life every day, three things. Laugh, have faith in our religion, and cry, either from joy or sadness, because it means you have passion. Do these three things, and you, don't, and you will have a good life. And then at the end of his speech, he says, don't give up. Don't ever give up. So 600,000 people will die of cancer this year in the US. But because of significant advances in medicine and technology, more of us will live a lot longer than they would have 20 years ago. And the news flash for you is the death rate is currently 100%. So I mean, you can't get saved all the time. But, but actually, it's, it's, worse, it's better than, 10, than 100%. I said 10%? 100%, 100%, death rate is 10%. But, you know, because uh, um, defibrillators, um, a lot of folks will end up dying more than once, so it's better than 100% is the death rate. So we do with that what you want. <laughs> that, so that 600,000 deaths by cancer is a huge number. But to me, a more sobering number is that 12 million Americans will consider suicide this year, and 1.2 million will end up in some emergency room somewhere. That's amazing, that's, that's horrible. A couple years ago, I was doing this intensive 10-month Colson Fellows uh, worldview study, and at the culmination of all the work, there was the Wilberforce Weekend, which was a three-day event in Fort Worth, and it had a lot of amazing speakers. One of them was a guy named Matthew Sleeth. He's a retired ER doctor, and now he's an author and a pastor. And during this time in the ER, he was really concerned that he's seeing a lot of attempted suicides. So for the past two decades, the rate of suicides have grown about 2% each year. And he thought that biblical wisdom really wasn't being brought to bear on this, on this problem. He, he said, said that hope is desperately needed in our society. So suicide is measured in deaths per 100,000. Deaths per 100,000. Right now, it's around 14.5 per 100,000. That ties us with the highest number with the era called the Great Depression. But 14.5 per 100,000 doesn't really tell the whole story. We have technologies today that they didn't have the 1930s. They have defibrillators, Norcan, EMTs, um, ambulances, emergency rooms that just weren't there. Uh, they didn't have hospitals in every small town or accessible to every small town. And so when you take all these things out and figure everything in, then the death rate would be closer to 300 per 100,000 for suicides, attempted suicides. And it's really worse than that because overdoses are now in a different category. They're not even counted as suicides. And so you could triple that number, which really makes it ridiculous. So how have we handled feelings of loneliness and isolation? So how does a society deal with a pandemic? Isolate. 
and that just makes the anxiety and the loneliness and the depression even worse. So the demographics, it used to be that older white guys used to, used to commit suicide the most. But now it seems to be an equal opportunity killer. Most alarming is the spike in the deaths of young people. Now the least likely people, lowest chance of, of committing suicide or having suicidal thoughts are committed Christians. We're about six times less likely to commit suicide. There's got to be a reason for that. They've been studying this statistic since the mid-1800s, and it's been pretty steady right on through. Compared to the rest of society, we're six times less likely to commit suicide. And I, and I can attest to the fact that this church will support you if you are feeling that way. But you got to say that you're in trouble. You know, mind reading and hints might work for your spouses, <laughs> but you really can't rely on that to be the, the main way to get your act across. You, you, if you're in trouble, you got to say something. Sometimes all it takes to make a big, big difference in your life is to get involved with a small group. And there's others there who will care and walk with you through the tough times. And, you know, you guys have been such a blessing to me, my wife, my family. Your cards of encouragement, the meals, the gifts, um, prayers. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's really amazing. It's significant. Now, something else about Christian friends that I noticed in my own little walk here. Um, when I let my Christian friends know the problems that we were having, almost everybody asked if there's a way that they could help. But when I talked to my non-Christian friends, they would all kind of internalize it, and uh, they would, well, um, they would give me a lot of adjectives. We'll just put it that way. There really is a lot of hope in Christ. Christians have a belief that there's something more than a, a body and a mind, but also a soul. We're made in the image of God, and he has a plan for us. But every day we still lose 130 people to suicide. And to put that number into perspective, for every murder, there are two and a half times more suicides. Think about that. So how did we get here in this problem? One reason is the loss of family structure. The feeling that, well, in your family, um, in spite of the fact that you have to clean your room, you know that someone has your back no matter what. No matter what you do, someone's got your back. Our, our country has gone from a belief in family, a belief in faith, and even a belief that there's a right and a wrong. So even the idea of a Sabbath, you know, for the past few thousand years, we always took a day of rest. But now it's like a 24-7 Spaz attack, you know, and it's, it's absolutely crazy. And the Im impact of social media, you can become connected with anybody on the planet at any time. And uh, unrealistic comparisons to your dull life compared to the best things that people post 
it really makes you feel like you're way behind in this race. You know, keeping up with the Joneses is, uh, excuse me if there's you know, Joneses, but um, you know, now it's not just your neighbor. Now it's everybody. Now it's everybody. And in the past 20 years, anybody with a phone or computer can go to the darkest places. I mean, we'll just leave it at that. But if you end up clicking on one of these things by mistake, it, it can become addictive. And then your thoughts can become very dark. And maybe, maybe I don't even matter. You know, maybe it would be just better if I just wasn't even here. Or maybe it'd be better if I just quit. Now, what about the traditional solutions from the $4.3 trillion healthcare industry? So we followed these recommendations, which, is, which are good. Increased screening for depression. Increased number of people taking antidepressants. So now we're one in eight adults take antidepressants. Hot, hotline phone numbers for suicide. And we're taking marginalized people and mainstreaming them. And yet, and yet, Following these recommendations, every single year for the past 20 years, the suicide rate has gotten worse. And the alarming thing is the healthcare industry just keeps saying to do the same thing. Now, what about, there was a quote from Einstein. Remember this quote? It says, it's something about doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting the same result. What's that called? Insanity. Ah, insanity. So Dr. Sleeth said that he went to his wife's commencement at Georgetown University several years ago. And something the speaker said stuck with him like Velcro to this day. This little old lady was talking and kind of going all over the place. And, uh, and then she said, your life will have no meaning until you realize that you were put on this planet to serve others. That was Mother Teresa. At at that point, once you make a priority to serve others, your life will have meaning. So we're about the business of the Lord. And if we are doing everything we can to further the good news and making him the compass of our lives, then our lives will have a wonderful meaning. And you can endure all sorts of things that you wouldn't have been able to otherwise. The Bible is the only text ancient or otherwise, that tells you where suicide comes from. Look at Satan and Adam and Eve. Somehow he convinced them that allowing death to enter their lives was preferable to being in their perfect existence. Satan wanted Job, Job to curse God and die. Satan tried to convince Christ to throw himself off the temple. Satan did convince Judas to hang himself. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The Bible has many people that were depressed and didn't want to live any longer. Moses, Elijah, David, Jonah, Paul. But when they address their concerns to the Lord, he ministers to them in a lot of different ways. If you read up on those things, it's different. Every time, it's specially designed to help them out of their doldrums. What about the story of Paul and Silas in jail? Do you remember that? It's in Acts 16. They were imprisoned, but were singing praises and worshiping God. 
And all of a sudden, there was an earthquake, and all the walls came down. And the jailer figured he lost all his prisoners. And in the Roman days back then, if you lost your prisoners, you were in big trouble. So he drew his sword to commit suicide. And at that moment, what did Paul say? He says, don't kill yourself. We're all here. And that's what the church needs to say. Don't kill yourself. We're all here. So, depressed people in the Bible. If you want a good reading on depression, read Psalm 88. So it's a, it's a bummer of a read. Uh, this song, Psalm is from the sons of Korah. Korah led the rebellion against Moses, and he and all his rebel, rebellion's followers were swallowed up in some giant sinkhole. Do you remember that? It says sons, but it might just mean the... Uh, descendants. So why don't we read it? Let's read it. But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me my friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Guilt, depression. I mean, this is, this is Korah's sons. And he saw Korah and all his followers die. Sorrow, grief. I mean, all the feelings that you would get from that. Suicidal thoughts come from Satan. If you or someone you know is dealing with suicidal thoughts, know that these thoughts are not yours, but are coming from Satan. According to Dr. Sleeth, it's not you, but your enemy. And understanding that has helped people deal with it. What does the Bible say about my responsibility toward those who are in a bad place? Remember the story of Cain and Abel? Cain kills his brother, and God asks him, well, where's Abel? Where's your brother Abel? And Cain comes up with this smart aleck remark about, you know, am I my brother's keeper? Well, yes, we are our brother's keeper. Let's read this one. If you falter in a time of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Does not he repay everyone according to what they have done? We have a responsibility to those who stumble towards slaughter. God knows your heart and will pay everyone according to what they have or have not done. Dr. Sleeth said there's a ton of books about what causes suicide. But he wanted to know what causes the ones to turn back from the brink. In his interviews with Christians who backed off, the number one answer was fear of what would happen afterwards. And that's biblical. Fear of the Lord, fear of the consequences of what would happen afterwards, and fear of moving from a bad situation to a permanently worse situation. 
The number two answer was concern and fear of what would happen to those left behind. And that's a very Christian way of putting the value and well-being of others first. So it's the job of the church, meaning everyone in the church, not just the ones down the hill, to support those who are struggling. If someone you know who is depressed and you suspect may be having suicidal thoughts, it's okay to ask that question. Are you thinking of suicide? So people, that, people think that you don't want to ask that question because it will somehow put the thought of suicide in their head. But more than likely, they've already been thinking about suicide already. And so it's your job to be there to help and to be a support. But don't play the role of counselor. Don't get in over your head. I'm going to ask our deacon, Austin Bailey, who was in the back just a minute ago. I hear him coming. <laughs> Tell you what's, what kind of help is available. Uh, could someone go out and see if he's in the other room, please? So while we're waiting for him, I'm going to look at offering this class by Dr. Sleuth. Uh, Sleeth um, later in the year in springtime or summer if anybody's interested. Now, um, one of the things that he talked about is the, the importance of fellowship meals and having someone over to break bread with, sharing your life with another person, taking all the things that you need to take Sharing them all, sharing everything. And so that could be what we used to do at home was, was new people would come over and, and every, every so often on Sunday after church, we'd have them over for lunch. We did that to several people. It was really great. Also, you want to make sure that if you've got a new person uh, in the church here, why don't you just pay attention to them for a bit? Make sure that they're sitting next to somebody. Come on up, Austin. All right, so I don't know where Steve left off at, but, but uh, there, you know, the first thing everybody needs to know is they're not alone in any type of situation, whether it's uh, feeling down, depressed, anxious about something. There's people here in the church that you can talk to. And uh, a few years ago, um, I was really involved with the prison ministry, and um, it got to the point where my legs were, I really couldn't do that anymore. So I asked God, I said, uh, what, can, what can I do? I want to still help, but what can I do? What, can, what would you have me to do? And that was, of course, we were going through the COVID time and all that, and Prison ministry shut down for a while, and uh, the church had an opportunity to um, have people trained up to be coaches in mental health coaching, addiction and recovery coaching, through the American Association of Christian Counselors. And the, God opened the door for me to be able to 
get involved with the mental health coaching. And so for the past couple of years or so, I've been working on mental health coaching. And God's allowed me to meet with people uh, on a fairly regular basis. Um, and I've completed my courses and all that. And um, I've been able to talk with people, uh, meet with people at the office down below and talk with them and just basically walk beside them and kind of go through what they're going through um, and help them along in that process. Uh, make referrals um, to people that are, you know, above my expertise. But um, I just, I, you know, I just say all that to say this, that just remember you're not alone and don't ever feel um, ashamed to come and talk to somebody. Um, my, do my door's always open. My phone number's available. I have cards on the counter out there. Um, if you want to meet, we can sit and have coffee somewhere and just talk. And if I can help, I will help. If I can't help, I will get you help. So um, I just say all, all that to say this. If you're interested in mental health coaching or addiction and recovery coaching, come see me, come see Pastor Nick, Kim. They have all the information on it right now. If you're interested in getting into mental health coaching, the AACC, the American Association of Christian Counselors, have a three-course free tuition for anybody that wants to get into that field. And that will give you a jump-off point to um, mental health coaching. Thank you. Yeah, just kill that thing. That's good. So we have services available to those who need to have some, uh, having, having bad thoughts. And I think the most important thing is to know that, um, you know, if you, if you are coming to church and you're not feeling great, you don't just say to people, yeah, I'm fine. Everything's fine. I'm fine. Everything's good. Tell them what's going on if you're having a problem. And, uh, and we will definitely line you up, and we'll, we'll, we'll stand by you. Remember, don't kill yourself. 